0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com slash B-E. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Transformative Principle, Episode 91 with Piper Riddle. Welcome to The Transformative Principle, where we learn how to be an amazing educational leader from real educational leaders. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. Thank you so much for listening. Today we're doing part two of my interview with Piper Riddle, principal of Draper Elementary in Utah. And today we're going to talk about instruction at her school and how she focuses and works with her teachers and how she knows good instruction is taking place. As you know, she's in a dual immersion school where half the day is in Mandarin, half the day is in English, and she really has a good way of making sure she knows when good things are happening in her school. And I think that it's a really cool, neat way to look at things. So enjoy this conversation. What I want to talk about now is the actual learning that's happening in your school. We've had a lot of pressure over the last few years to be really good at teaching kids and common core has come and new state assessments and new teacher evaluation systems. We've got a lot of pressure on teachers now and your English speaking teachers have, have been here through all of this and probably feel that pressure a lot. How do you deal with the idea that they're essentially still being held responsible for the learning of their kids when they're not seeing the kids for half the day? and what impact that has on them.
1: Okay. I think I first need to really quickly explain again the content division. So first, second and third grade um, math teacher is the target language teacher um, in our case Chinese. And then the English speaking teacher is in charge of English language arts as far as, you know, tested areas, if you will. And then in fourth and fifth grade, I think that's where that burden really does lie because math becomes uh, more abstract and less language rich. Um, Our state opts to move that content over to the English partner, um, meaning that in fourth, fifth and sixth grade, the target language teacher uh, teaches Chinese literacy and science and the English language teacher uh, teaches English language arts, math and social studies. And so I think that's probably where the burden lies, because in the primary grades, it really is pretty evenly divided. And when we have our data meetings, I see equal intention between both teachers, certainly in in the area that they are responsible for. But in language arts, sorry, I'm going to backtrack for a second. In language arts, they do take both responsibility. And that's been fascinating. It's it's something that we realized beginning of last year that, you know, previously during uh, English language art, uh, data conversations and problem solving, the language, Chinese language teacher would kind of Be not as involved in the conversation. And then it occurred to to us that there's a lot to uh, comprehension skills and strategies and themes, you know, building those funds of knowledge for students that was cross, could be across both languages. And so um, our teachers have been more intentional working together that if in English language arts they're working on author's purpose or main main idea or summarizing, that then in the Chinese literacy classroom they are, are working on those same skills. Um, but in the target language. And so that's been really cool to watch because um, that was a teacher idea and to watch then teachers come together and more passionately be involved in uh, language arts because there there is more commonality uh, than when we first realized. So that helps then to share that burden. So primary grade's not so much of an issue. In grades four or five, it does become more complicated. In the state of Utah, in fourth and fifth grade, we, um, our state testing is for English language arts, math, and science. And so the science becomes the primary responsibility of the Chinese language teacher, but that leaves the burden of English language arts and math proficiency largely on the English teacher. Again, the target language does support with about 20 to 30 minutes of additional instruction in the language, in math, but that initial understanding and, and building that proficiency does lie with the English teacher, and I'm not sure I could ar- articulate really how to uh, mitigate that burden. I think one, you do have to acknowledge it, and then provide whatever supports and resources um, teachers identify that would would help with that. You know, for example, supplemental programs for for homework or for practice opportunities, like uh, software programs. An example we use MobiMax as a supplemental um, program for additional supports at home or in practice stations at school and and that helps kids to build fluency and um, automaticity reflex math is another program that focuses then on student computation skills uh, freeing up then instructional time for building you know depth of knowledge and more complicated uh, thinking because kids are able to work individually on computation with computers and I think then too that constant dialogue so again our fourth and fifth grade teachers meet every Friday as partner teachers and discuss what standards and concepts they're teaching the next week and looking at weekly assessment, you know, formative assessment data and sharing that with each other. You know, and for example, if in math, the English teacher is seeing, you know, my kids are really, our kids, pardon me, they wouldn't say my kids, they would say our kids are really having a hard time um, with fractions and, and conceptualizing that. Then, the target language teacher discusses ways that they could emphasize that in their supportive role and and help partner uh, with that challenge that kids are having. You know the interesting thing is when those scores then are published, I see the whole school celebrating everyone because that's that's the reality that whether whether you were specifically responsible for that content area, it really does take the efforts and, and work of of everyone in the building. Um, for students to be successful, and so I think that 's just important too, to acknowledge that everyone plays a role in that, and with that said, when there 's not as much success as one would hope for that same thing, that the the blame, if you will, is distributed appropriately <laughs> as well that that we don 't allow any one educator to feel that they 're alone in supporting student achievement because it really does It takes my efforts as the administrator. And even how I allocate resources and instructional aids or interventionists, as well as how I support the classroom environment and, and certainly the skills of the classroom teacher. With that said, the interesting thing, there's an HR element there, too. Um, Jethro, I apologize to interrupt you, I'm afraid I forget this piece, that I do have to be really um, purposeful in making that assignment. Because if I can be candid about that, I think you might understand Not every teacher is well-suited for that position.
0: Yeah, that is definitely correct. And that's something that we have to pay attention to. And you can't just put someone in a position and say, oh, you've been trained as an educator, so you're good to go on this. There are a lot of other things that they need to have and be able to do. And I think especially at your school, where there are many opportunities for them to possibly be to have challenges that they may not have at another school. And what you're doing is actually working because you um, your school was recently uh, the SAGE, which is the state test, scores were released for this last school year. And your school was ranked in the top 25 in math, which is really great accomplishment, especially considering that the people who are teaching your students' math are teaching that in Chinese and, and they're able to score well on a state test that is in English. The next thing I'd like to ask is how do you ensure that good instruction is taking place when you're not speaking the target language that is in the classroom?
1: Well, I have to highly rely on my observational skills of, you know, just watching. So, you know, in the dual immersion family, if you will, it's commonly said that if you walk into the classroom and you don't know the language, but you can't ascertain within you know ten to fifteen minutes what's being taught, that that should be a red flag. Um, while you know, when I first heard that, it seemed like a, a lofty goal. Um, it's, it's true that our um, most effective teachers, I can bring anyone into their classroom, you know, and not knowing the language. And we're able to step back out and ask them, you know, so what do you think they're teaching? And, and they're able to identify that. And that's a sign that the instruction is explicit and that the students in that room, regardless of where they're at with their language proficiency, are able to access the academic knowledge. And so that's really important. When it comes to kind of those discrete skills that as a district we um, we observe and calculate. There's a better word: tally. Um, like opportunities to respond or feedback. I watch carefully the interaction between teacher and students. And honestly, those are easier to identify. When it comes to quality, though, of feedback or another area that we um, pay attention to is, you know, depth of knowledge and you know the rigor of the questioning, for example. So I can identify when a question's being asked. And even sometimes the complexity of the question, you know, if the student responds with a one-word answer, answer, it was likely, you know, DOK one, maybe two, uh, where the student responds with several sentences, then it likely was a more complex question. So I do, you know, all the formative observations feel really confident in. Even the summative, I feel like I have a Sense of what's going on and um, able to identify that. But um, I also just want to acknowledge that I do really appreciate when people from the state office will come and visit and do observations and and we'll do observational rounds together. They are speakers of Mandarin and so we will go and observe together and then debrief afterwards. And it's a really great way for me to be able to continue to calibrate myself with those who um, are understanding the language. And I learn a lot through those experiences. So while I know I have lots of room to continue to improve in my observation and support of um, the target language classroom, I feel like that gets better every time I'm able to interact with people from the state office. And now we even have a a coordinator in our district level who speaks Mandarin. And, And those are great opportunities for me to learn and to go deeper with that, if you will.
0: That's pretty cool. I I didn't realize that you had people come do walkthroughs with you that did speak Mandarin. So I think that that's a a good support for you to make sure that you understand what's actually happening. In your English-speaking classrooms, How does your feedback different to your Mandarin-speaking teachers and your English-speaking teachers?
1: Well, in language instruction, one of the basic tenets— and, and critical facets of language instruction is that we elicit a lot of output from students and and that output includes, you know, both speaking and, and writing, but, but largely speaking, especially in the, the first, um, the primary grades. And the great thing is, is that really coincides. And I remember, you know, years ago going to professional development on highly effective language teaching. And I thought, well, this is just, good instruction on steroids, that this is what we want all classrooms to have. Lots of opportunities to respond, quality discussions, a clear sense of whether or not students understand, because of course that would be critical as you build language comprehension. Um, So the nice thing is, is I I don't find that we are supporting the two classrooms so differently because those high priority instructional skills that we've identified as a district really are across the two Um, the two languages. And what's, I think, really fantastic, you know, because as a building, I'm sure like yours, we do a lot of instructional rounds with our teachers where they go and observe their their peers and give feedback and observe that some of our target language classrooms have been identified, you know, by myself and and by the peer group as just amazing models of explicit instruction, of creating opportunities to respond, and, and that pacing piece too, because you know, to increase uh, opportunities to respond. Sometimes that means that we also need to have just that appropriate pacing where it's not the stand and deliver and and our language teachers, because that's what they have to do. They tend to develop a fluency with that more readily, if you will. And and then that's something that all of our teachers are able to see and then want to implement even better in in their classrooms.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Can a normal principal um, just walk in and be a principal in a dual immersion school? Can a normal teacher just walk in and be a teacher in a dual immersion school? Or is there something additional that you need to be successful in that?
1: The answer is yes. Although, you know, a normal principal, aren't we all crazy? So I'm not sure that that's a correct qualifier, but.
0: <laughs> good point.
1: Good um, point. <laughs> yes. I think it helps though to have, well, to develop um, a basic understanding of the principles. Of effective immersion programs. We do have nine assurances uh, from the state, also called non negotiables, tenants of the program that, when followed with fidelity, we know leads to really fantastic outcomes for kids. But not all of them are comfortable. So I think it's really important for an administrator or a teacher going into an immersion program to know and understand those and to be able to commit to thinking in creative ways to problem-solve issues when they come up as they try to protect. I think it helps, too, to just have a, a passion for second language learning. Gratefully, my, my own children have a value for that as well, and, and I think that helps carry me when things do become difficult, and I think, boy, it'd be, it'd be easy if this were just a, a traditional school without a specialized program within, um, and yet I don't have to walk too far to then enter a classroom and see the amazing things that kids are doing. I can't imagine if I, if I didn't have that belief and passion for that, that sometimes those challenges would be overwhelming and maybe um, defeating.
0: Yeah. I've learned a ton from you today. I always learn a ton whenever I talk to you. <laughs> so um, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. My last question that I ask every principal is, what is one thing that someone can start doing this week to be a transformative principal like you? hmm.
1: That's a really big question, Jethro. First, assuming that I'm transformative, but uh,
0: <laughs> not assuming knowing, don't you worry.
1: I think something that could be done this week is listen. It's really easy to get caught up in the, the daily doing of the principalship. And yet I, I know that if, when I don't take the time to listen to my kids, listen to teachers, listen to parents, and that means I need to be present and to be around the building and make myself available and that our outcomes are far greater and my ability to build relationships, which I think is key to success, you know, in this work that we do. I can't do that when I stop listening. And and sometimes that listening part is hard. We hear things that maybe are uncomfortable, but I think it's just critical that I continue to have an open door to my office, that I'm often outside of my office and out and about and And people feel like they can approach me and give feedback and that I listen and respond to that feedback. So listening is a great place to start.
0: That is awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it.
1: All right. Thank you, Jethro.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this interview. I learned a ton and I hope that you take what you've heard and apply it to your life, especially that piece about listening. It is so vital and so important that we are listening to the people who are talking to us and, and working together to help find ways to solve problems. If you wouldn't mind, if you learn something from this podcast, take a minute and answer the survey question at the end, which is asking you, what are the challenges that you're facing? What's something that you're struggling with? And if you would take a minute and just answer that question I'd love to be able to find people who can help you with your specific issues. I do read every one of those and I will reply back to you if you leave your email address and uh, start dialogue with you. So thank you for listening to Transformative Principle. I'm Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones.